Park with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations wrapped up in books. Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to the first bookmark of 2022. We hope you had a good holiday and caught up on some reading. And we've got a great show to kick off the year. Our featured guest is Lynn Bryan talking about her memoir, Iron Man. We'll also hear from Robert Hyde from Galileo Publishers. And Bonnie McBird will explain why she set her latest Sherlock Holmes novel in Cambridge. Lynn, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you. It's nice to be here. We'll be talking to Robert from Galileo Publishers a bit later. So it's a small publishing house. And your book, Iron Man, that's published by Salt. This has been a positive experience for you working with a small publisher? I, th- I think small publishers are absolutely great and really, really necessary in today's environment because big publishers are quite swayed by fashion and they're swayed by numbers, by making sure that they get plenty of sales. Whereas small publishers go with the heart and they select books that they really, really like and they want to release in the world. Iron Man, when I sent it to my agent, she raved about it. She thought it was a great book. She thought the big publishers would snap it up. And the big publisher's response was, brilliant book, but we don't know how to sell it. So we went to Salt and Chris Hamilton Emery read it and said, yes, it's for us. Without them probably the book would never have been released. So I think small presses are essential. And there's so many examples of small presses at the moment that are creating careers and salvaging writers' careers, actually. There's very, very many writers, particularly women writers like me, who've had a family and so their career has stalled a little bit. And then they they finish a book, finally, (laughs) and they want it released in the world. And their previous publishers are not that keen to pick it up. So small presses are essential to the publishing environment and the cultural environment. They really are at the moment. And why do you think a big publisher said your book would be hard to market? I think because I'm not a celebrity. So they've got nothing to hang it on, really. And and a lot of memoirs, particularly memoirs, it's really hard to place a memoir. A lot of memoirs rely on the author's presence their current career and if you're merely an author being an author it's not enough you've got to have more ideally you're either a film star or a tv star or tv chef something like that but also I think my story quite intimate story and it's also about subjects that maybe people don't want to get that close to disability women's role in society and their position as carers. So some difficult subject matter that, yeah, is hard to sell. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you about it because I enjoyed it very much. But we'll hear your first choice of music now. Is music important to you, then? I have to say no. That's (laughs) honest. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very important to my father. Important to me in my teenage years. It was how I rebelled. I was a punk rocker. I loved the arrogance in the music around then. But now I just like quietness. I really do. 
When we can't play quiet for you, we can't play <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't translate very well, would it? So we'll start now with somebody I know was important to your dad. This is Johnny Cash and son Quentin. Why this one? Dad always used to play this record. He actually looked a little bit like Johnny Cash with his black hair, but also it was the man telling his story and it was the anti-establishment man. And, this, and dad was very anti-establishment. He was a disabled man. It made him furious. So he was against very, very many things. And particularly he was against the way society pigeonholed him and patronised him. And Johnny Cash, I think, represented for Dad a man who stood up for people like him. And here he is singing in San Quentin and he's chivying along the jailbirds and giving them a good old nice time and you may object to that or you may not but basically he empathizes with the fact that these men have been locked away for a very long time and some of them perhaps for crimes that they didn't commit san quentin you've been living hell to me and that was san quentin by johnny cash the first choice of music on bookmark today from our featured guest lynn bryan Lynn's short story collection, Envy at the Cheese Handout, came out in 1995 and led the Daily Telegraph to describe her as a powerful new writer. Her first novel, Gorgeous, was published in 1999 and her second, Like Rabbits, three years later. The Times described it as a sweet and funny novel, a sustained act of ventriloquism. Her memoir, Iron Man, came out at the end of last year. In it, she reflects on her family life, particularly her relationship with her father, who was diagnosed with polio at the age of 15 and lived the rest of his life with a disability caused by the disease, using crutches and wearing a caliper. Costa award-winning novelist Emma Healy said of it, this memoir is modern and radical and sometimes uncomfortable, but it's also warm and straightforward. It feels like a brave book, an important book, one that many, many people will find inspiring. Well, as a sailing, I enjoyed it very much. Is this a book you've been trying to write for a long time? And I asked that knowing the answer, really, because you talk about the writing process <laughs> yeah. in the yeah. book. I didn't know I was trying to write it for a long time. You mentioned in my biog that my previous books, and they're, they've been out, what, 20 years ago. Since when I've been writing and writing and writing. Obviously, I've been raising a family. I've been teaching. I've been doing lots of things. But in my spare time, I've been trying to produce another book. And I've come up with novels. I've even come up with a play script. I've been slaving away. I couldn't get any of them finished. And it was frustrating and it was quite scary, actually. It was a, ma a major block. And then my father became seriously ill in 2015. And I visited him in hospital. His relatives were there, his fiancée were there. And they were talking about him and his experience of polio, him as a child. And there were stories that I hadn't heard before. And also, to be honest... Dad spoke about polio, but we were never allowed to ask any questions. So we didn't really know the full extent of his, his story. He gave us his version. But here at his bedside, while he was silent because he was so poorly, others were talking for him and about him. And I began to realise that there was far more of a story there. 
and that also I was inside that story somehow. So I started jotting down notes at his bedside, taking them home and writing them up. It began to turn into a memoir, but actually I'd started this memoir and I didn't know this either. <laughs> I'm either extremely dense or <laughs> I don't know, but I started writing this memoir in a different kind of way a few years before dad ended up in hospital and actually sadly passed away. In 2009, I did a postgraduate at art school and I had the intention of doing artworks about this artist that I devised, this character I devised, but it ended up that I started making wooden legs and calipers on this course. I couldn't not do that. I knew it was linked to dad's story, but I couldn't work out why, but it wasn't until dad's power diminished, you know, and when he passed away, that actually all the writing began to flow and a book appeared that I completed. Would you have been able to publish it while your dad was alive? No, absolutely not. And I would, and I wasn't able to write it when he was alive either. It was his story that he told in the way he wanted to tell it. It was a short, angry story. And you couldn't break it apart. You couldn't go anywhere near it. You could only ask him certain questions that were about how he was feeling physically. There was no questions about how he felt psychologically about his disability. You just had to get on with it. This was his life and you had to be part of this life. You couldn't prize it apart. You just couldn't analyse it or actually say, oh, Dad, you know, your disability makes me feel really sad. You can't even say something like that. It's very hard to explain. It's like there was a wall around him and the story was inside this wall. And what was this story? He was 15, extremely able at cricket. And he was actually had been spotted for Leicester County Cricket Club. And he swam in the canal and caught the virus, the polio virus, from swimming in the canal. He can remember getting home, looking at himself in the mirror, and then there's a big gap in time, and then he finds himself in bed in hospital, paralysed from the neck down. Much like today with the virus, the doctors and nurses, they kept themselves fully masked because there was a great fear of polio, and rightly so, because it could kill you. Family couldn't visit. Very traumatic for him. He left hospital with a paralysed leg so he could no longer play cricket. He had an iron, which, uh, a caliper on his leg, but like two struts of iron attached to a leather brace at the top, attached to a shoe on his foot, and he had wooden crutches. And he kept with those, I can never say this word, prothesis <laughs> <laughs> for the rest of his life. He never changed them. So he had the same things he had when he was a kid. Very strange. But I think he was just used to using them. He knew how to move around with them. He got work in a factory. He met my mother. He had my sister and me. He got a home, his own home. He became a darts player and won medals. And he'd become a normal man. And he wanted to be seen as normal. In many ways, 
hugely admirable. He's the fight in him, the energy in him, the insistence in him on not being looked down on. In many, many, many ways, he was heroic. But part of the story is that his wife, my mum, and my sister and me had to bolster up this man to support this fiction almost that he was this heroic man when basically he was just a man trying his best, (laughs) you know, and he was doing very, very well. But we were caught inside a fiction. A lot of pretense happened in the house and more so when you left the house and you went shopping or you went to the pub, then dad kind of ramped up his hero status in a way. It was quite hard to be around and quite diminishing for the women in his family. Because we're looking at when you're growing up, we're looking at the Mm. 60s and 70s, some of the 80s as well. So attitudes towards disability, very different from now. And he would have felt that and you would have felt that. Oh, yes, absolutely. Very, very conscious of eyes upon him and by extension, eyes upon us. We were, I use words like freak in the memoir because that's what dad was basically, even though he'd achieved so much and even though he was a funny man and he could tell a good story, he was still, and he knew this was how people viewed him, people saw him as the freak. And by extension, my sister and I, And my mum, we were the Freaks family. It was quite hard, actually, yes. It was a very female household, entirely Mm. female, apart from your dad, which was something that benefited him, that he used to his advantage, and something that angered him as well. Yes. This was one of the difficult things, because I've always been drawn towards working with women, socialising with women, feminism. And actually, I didn't see until I started writing this memoir that actually my feminism was brewing within this family unit, because I could see how dad took advantage of our status or lack of status as females. You said in the 60s and 70s and 80s that disability was Frowned upon is the wrong phrase, but people know what I mean. Actually, being a woman, it was really, really hard. Do you mind if I read out a quote? No, go for it. Okay. At my book launch, I was trying to explain the impulses behind this book. And I'd actually just found a quote by Amy Mann, who's a singer from America. And she said in The Guardian, and it was quite recently... In the 60s, it was understood that women were stupid. The conventional wisdom was that women talked all the time, that they were bad drivers, that if they were unhappy in their marriage, it was because they didn't accept literally what nature had destined them for. And so you can't make a mistake because the mistake is going to be immediately attributed to your gender. They create a box and then they put you in a box so that box can control you. I think any woman my age is traumatised by growing up in the 60s and 70s because it was so relentless. And it was. And Dad 
put the females in his family in that same kind of box, that we were lesser than him. And he needed to do that in a way in order to bolster up himself. But also it was helpful to him. Women were seen as carers, domestics, homebodies. They built the home, they nurtured. So that was helpful to him to have three females who could really look after him and run around and scurry around after him. I can remember dashing backwards and forwards, giving him his beer and all that kind of thing, switching on the telly for him. But also he liked us to dress up in a very, very feminine way that other men would would appreciate. And I think that was to say, look, I am a freak, but look at my daughters. This is what the freak has produced. It's produced women that actually you would quite desire. Very difficult to live in that house. Very complicated. complicated. And um, the polio never goes away. Tell me about the Sprite. Oh, yes. Uh, (laughs) Dad, because he was in a lot of pain all the time, and particularly as he got older, and second effects, polio comes in as well, where you... Your muscles seize up more, you get more and more tired. And he talked about polio incessantly within the house because he was in pain, but also because his situation made him so cross. As he got older, I'd visit and we'd have a kind of conversation and we'd talk a little bit about me, a little bit about my daughter Rose a little bit about my partner, Andrew, but then the conversation would steer around to polio. And I began to see polio as this kind of sprite that would appear on my father's shoulder and who would mouth the things that he was saying. So it's like two mouths going on, a kind of echo system, and who would support him and who would chivvy him on and say, yep, This is polio. This is what polio is doing to me. This is what polio has done to me. This is what I have to live with. Hear me. I saw it as a a sprite because it was always in the air. Even when he was quiet, it was in the air. And it would follow me around, particularly in the bungalow where he lived in his later years, and pursue me and whisper in my ear. Very vivid image in the book. Well, well, let's put the sprite to one side. Let's hear from uh, Robert Hyde now. Galileo Publishers is an independent publishing house based in Cambridge. And when I spoke to managing director Robert Hyde, I asked him to tell me how long Galileo have been established. We actually started off in 1999, published a a little book of days based on the, the novel Sophie's World, which was quite a sensation at the time. We then got taken over by... uh, our other company, which published Lord of the Rings board games, and, our, and we published a board game just before Peter Jackson's movies came out. And so Galileo went into a sort of uh, into the freezer for about uh, 10 or 15 years after that, and it was only in 2014, 2015, when we brought the book publishing company back again. When you say we, is this you? We actually is just myself and my wife. My wife does all the um, accounting, but everything else is just me. And why? Why did you set up a, a publishing arm? Because I've been a publisher all my life. I've worked for big publishers, both in, in America and in this country. And uh, I got to the stage where I felt that it was um, going to be much more 
of a life to do it um, all myself. And so um, I quit the corporate life and set up Galileo to really publish the books that I wanted to publish rather than um, books that other people wanted to publish. And quit the corporate life. I suppose with a small press as well, you can work with an ethos. Is there an ethos with Galileo? Probably the ethos is that I publish in the areas that interest me rather than the areas that are going to make us rich. The company has published in, in the literary area, published quite a few books on Scotland. We were very lucky through Robert McFarlane in, in Cambridge to pick up the rights to a lady called Nan Shepherd, who is very much being rediscovered at the moment, a, a Scottish writer, and we publish her poetry. We also have done our fair share of Cambridge projects. We have a Cambridge jigsaw. We have a lovely book called Monty Mouse of Cambridge. We have published German literature. We published Lana Cohen even. I mean, th these are all things that actually I am very keen on rather than following a, a particular ethos. Presumably you also look for something in a manuscript when it comes to you. It's not just about a subject you like. What are you looking for we very rarely publish things that sort of come over the transom. I mean, the majority of the things that we have published, we have gone out to look for ourselves. On the whole, we look for the kind of books that other people are less likely to publish. This has been a uh, quite a good methodology in, in, in the past. And small presses, increasingly successful these days. I mean, they're nominated for awards and winning awards as well. Uh, they're really coming on. The bigger the publishing groups like Penguin and, and HarperCollins, the bigger they become, the more chances there are indeed for smaller companies because the bigger companies are not prepared to take risks. We're able to take the kind of risks that the big um, conglomerates are not willing to do. So, yes, I mean, there are, there are great opportunities, but there are also huge disadvantages to being small. You don't have your own sales team, therefore you're reliant upon companies that sell a great number of small presses. So it's quite hard to reach out to the independent booksellers, you know, and it's also quite hard to get into Waterstones, who are the dominant force. Being a small publisher is, is, is not the best thing to be when, you, when you're trying to get into the um, Waterstones of this world. And how about during COVID? Has it been for a small publisher during COVID? I don't think COVID has really made a huge um, difference to our lives. I mean, we were very busy before COVID. We remained very busy during COVID. Some publishers were able to uh, to see quite big increases in, in their sales during the COVID period. We saw huge increases in our jigsaws. We're very lucky we balance our book publishing with with a recent move into the world of jigsaws. And at the beginning of COVID, we couldn't keep jigsaws in stock. I mean, they were just flying out of the door. So that, that was a very positive publishing aspect of the COVID um, period for us. The books sold no more or no less than they had probably before COVID. And when we say publishing house, what does that actually look like for Galileo, Robert? How do you publish books? Do you have a press or is it manuscripts at your end and then you send to an actual printing press? We tend to print most of our books in Poland. We print them digitally. We'd love to print our books in, in the UK, but we do, in fact, still get better prices from, from printing in Poland. I do most of the book design myself. I do the typesetting myself. I do a little bit of jacket design as well. We try and keep as much of the publishing process in-house rather than having to uh, pay other people to do it. You know, and as far as an office is concerned, 
I have an office at the end of the garden, which is my place of publishing. And uh, you're based in Cambridge. Is it a good place to be a small publishing house in Cambridge? I think so, yes. I mean, I've actually been in Cambridge um, on and off all my life. I, th- I think one can publish from anywhere in the world nowadays. I don't think you necessarily need to be in a particular place, but um, I think London has less and less attractions for book publishers nowadays, and I, I really think you can operate from anywhere you want to. It's fun being in Cambridge. I've always enjoyed Cambridge, but uh, I don't think it's really necessary to be in Cambridge, to be honest. And what books have you got coming out in the near future? We've got a very big book coming out, which ironically we're not able to sell in the UK until uh, 2023, which is T.S. Eliot, The Gloucester Notebook. It's a facsimile of a notebook that he kept in his teenage years and wrote down all the poems of his early period. And it's been in the Berg Museum in New York for 30 years. No one has ever seen it. And because I used to live in Gloucester, Massachusetts, I knew about this notebook and managed to track it down. And to cut a long story short, we got the rights to publish this book and we're going to be doing it in America. But um, for various reasons, we're not allowed to publish it in the UK until uh, until later. So that that is a very, very exciting project for us. And um, we're very proud to be Elliot's publishers for this project. That sounds great. What else have you got coming up? Peter Morfoot is a writer of, uh, of thrillers set in, in the south of France. We published his first book last year, which was called Knock'em Dead. We've got a new one coming out next year called The Essence of Murder. We were also very lucky to know a, a local artist, a lady called Ophelia Redpath, and we persuaded her to illustrate the jacket for Peter's new book, and we're also going to reissue his old books with artwork from her. So, so it really will be a sort of a local effort. And what would be your plans for the future, Robert, in terms of how you would want to see Galileo expand or go ahead? We will continue to um, do both books and jigsaws. We have recently teamed up with the Fitzwilliam Museum to package jigsaws for them. And so we've, we've actually this year done nine new jigsaws for the Fitzwilliam. I hope we shall continue to work with the Fitzwilliam and also to expand our jigsaw range. Other than that, we look to continue publishing books that interest us. We're doing Clifford Whitting, who is a um, an author from what is called the golden age of detective fiction. We're working with with Heifer's bookshop. Richard Reynolds is the um, crime and, and literature expert in heifers and he's been immensely helpful in in steering us towards the best authors in the in in the golden age era and so we're quite excited about expanding not only our thriller range but our golden age stable as as well that was robert hyde from galileo publishers and you can find out more information about their catalogue on their website galileopublishing.co.uk our featured guest on bookmark today is lynn bryan talking about her memoir Iron Man. Lynn's memoir is principally about your dad, but you also mention, as you've alluded to, your daughter, your partner, your sister, your mother, wider family as well. When you're writing about other people, you know, it's a very sensitive thing, isn't it? Because it's, this is your story, but they have their stories as well. How did you balance telling your story without impinging on theirs or revealing well, confidences or that kind of thing? Absolutely horrendous that's the most horrendous part of this writing process because you can't 
cut out the other people that are around you because they're part of the story as well. I was very, very super conscious of including them and what it would mean to them. I wrote the book with an awareness that I didn't want to offend them. I wanted to be truthful to what I'd experienced but also to try to suggest that it is my experience and their experience of dad may have been very different. I don't know if I quite achieved that. I wrote the book, sent it to my agent, thinking she'd say, this is rubbish, Lynn, and then I can go, oh, fab, well, I did it. (laughs) (laughs) No one has to see it. No one has to read it. None of the people I've featured are going to be hurt by it because it's back in the bin. But actually, she says, this is fantastic, Lynn. It's going to win prizes. I don't know about that. But her response was so amazing. I thought, oh, sugar, I've got to tell people that I've written about them. And this is very difficult for someone who's come from a family where you've never spoken about how dad's disability affected others. My sister's response was incredible because we've never spoken about I feel quite teary now. Dad's disability and how it affected us. She could recognise what I was trying to say in the memoir. And of course, the one person who can't read it and no longer with us is your dad. What do you think he would think of it? What would he say? Oh, he would have loathed it. Yeah, he would have been furious about it. What, the invasion of privacy or the painting of him as weak sometimes? Yeah, I think the painting of him is weak sometimes, and I don't think he would have liked to have known that his disability or the way that he he handled his disability had a real effect on his children. Do you think he did not know that? Once or twice, some things he said, yes. And also the fact that my sister and I, as soon as we could leave home, we left home. And geographically, we distanced ourselves very, very much. And nobody in his family had ever done that. But my sister and I, we ran and we stayed away. He would have compared, why is my situation so very different from my brother and my sister's situation? He must have reflected on it. One of the other things you do in the memoir is you write letters, you publish letters that you've written to people alive and dead uh, who you felt a connection either with through art or through their personal circumstances. Why did you include those letters? Well, the first letter I wrote was to Ian Jury. Ian Jury and the Blockheads were a big band when I was younger in the 80s. Jury had had polio as well, and he too had a caliper, I think. He certainly had a twisted, paralysed leg. I can remember watching him as a teenager and actually fancying him rotten because (laughs) (laughs) because his songs were so kind of rude and he had such great energy on top of the pops. Anyway, when I got to art school and I was making all these calipers, I remembered him and the first letter I wrote was to him, comparing him a little to my dad but also talking about his record, Spasticus Autisticus, against the year of the disabled person. He was very cross about it because he thought the year of disabled persons was patronising. So I wrote a, a letter to him about that. 
thanking him for being who he was and out in disability in a way that it had to be reckoned with. And we're talking on Bookmark today to Lynn Bryan about her memoir, Iron Man. Lynn, we were talking just before the music there about injury, about his caliper. And you mentioned earlier about your dad's caliper and crutches. These physical emblems of his illness became incredibly important to you, didn't they? Um, Not just Mm -hmm. in the artwork that you talked about, but in your reasoning and your thoughts about him, how he became part human, part object. Do you want to explain a bit more about that? Yeah, I came across a series of essays by Siri Hudsvet. One of them was called Charles Dickens and the Morbid Fragment. And it was about a character girl called Silas Wegg. And I think it was in the old curiosity shop. I think that was the Dickens novel. And Silas Wegg lost his wooden leg. And Siri Hudsvet writes that Silas Wegg with his wooden leg, was literally part object. And when I read that, I thought, oh, goodness me, that was my father. He was human, but he was also part object. And that's why people couldn't quite embrace him or include him, because he had these things, his wooden crutches, his very heavy metal iron. And I began to realise from that quote that poor man, he was having to accommodate these objects that weren't friendly objects. They were cruel objects. They hurt him. They're okay. They moved him from A to B, but they hurt. And they also flashed up that he wasn't what Ian Jury called normal. And so I write quite a bit about how he tries to accommodate these objects, but how they're a constant reminder of the fact that he was a very, very hurt, hurt man. And they affected his sense of his own masculinity. Absolutely, because I write about Dad in the Garden. I have this photograph of him, where he's behind the coal bunker, shirt off, in the sun, and he's doing the he-man pose where his arms are raised and hooked over and he's puffing out his chest. That's the man he wanted to be. That's the man society at the time expected men to be. But he couldn't be that because there were these things which were attached to him and he had to attach to himself. Poor man, he was carrying around signs that he wasn't a real man. And after his death, Lynn, you wore the knee brace for a while, didn't you? <laughs> Went I mean, a bit potty. I made, <laughs> I made knee braces at the art school and I did a display of knee braces. I actually made a wooden leg as well. And these knee braces were in very colourful, kitsch kind of 1970s fabric. And I was trying to undermine the ugly brace that Dad had over his knee that went around the iron. But there's a point at the end of the book where I'm trying to understand why I had a writer's block. I'm trying to knit everything together and I'm linking it to my father's disability. And it's kind of complicated, the analysis I get into, I suppose. One way in order to help me through that unpicking is I get the knee braces out and I put one around my knee 
and I feel what it feels like and I try to walk with it. And I mean, these are just the rubbish little braces I made from plaster of Paris, Velcro, wire, but just the knee brace. It alters you. You feel yourself transforming into a thing. Thank you, Lynn. We'll come back to you in just a moment, but let's hear now from uh, Bonnie McBird. Bonnie wrote the original screenplay for the movie Tron and has won three Emmy Awards for documentary writing and producing. Her first Sherlock Holmes novel, Art in the Blood, was published in 2015 and released in 17 languages. Her latest Holmes mystery, The Three Locks, came out at the end of last year. Working with such an established character has its challenges, of course. And here's Bonnie to tell us more. I sort of defined the parameters before I started doing this. And uh, one of the things I wanted to do is not write anything that would contradict what was in the original canon. And, you know, to stay really true to the characters themselves. One of the things, of course, is that Holmes himself is a mystery. Conan Doyle only gives us, you know, kind of certain aspects of him. And the rest of him is you have to fill it in. I like to, you know, bump him against quite a wide variety of Victorian types, I guess. So I do try to present interesting female characters in my stories, but but within the context of a home story. So they don't best him particularly. They may they may give him some trouble. The Three Locks is set in Cambridge, and um, the, it was a hotbed of women's issues at this time. I set some of this uh, story at the Cavendish Labs. I found out in researching this that women were actually allowed into the labs, and some of them studied there. There's been a debate for 130 years over which university Holmes might have attended, because it's not specified in the canon. My husband, who's a scientist himself, feels very strongly it had to have been Cambridge because of the science there, because of the emphasis on, on science. In the three locks, he well knew what Cavendish Labs was and what they were doing. And I sort of see Holmes as keeping up on the science of the day, just the way, you know, some men would follow the sports of the day. <laughs> when I pitched the notion of the three locks to the publisher, I just knew it was a good title. And then I started thinking, what kind of locks? You have, of course, the obvious locks, things that lock things away, things that lock and keep people out, and secrets that are locked inside you. And I mean, these are the more obvious, but then, of course, there are also locks along the river. I read, okay, there's something called the Jesus Lock. That name just hit me, and it's like something has to happen at the Jesus Lock. <laughs> so I went, I went to Cambridge, weirdly and sadly, it turns out actually somebody had drowned in that lock the week before. So it is actually a dangerous place. As I researched Cambridge uh, during the Victorian times, I ran across some other really fascinating things. For example, town and gown. There was a real kind of hostility between the university people and the people of the town. But the university had its own police force. They saw their charter as keeping the, of course, all-male students away from temptation. One of the ways they enforced that was to arrest women 
who were out in the evening. This kind of sweep took in lots of innocent people, you know, shopkeepers and maids and people going home from work and this kind of thing. They, you know, would accuse them of being prostitutes or they would suspect them of being prostitutes and they were taken away and put in the spinning house and they were held without trial. And this was, of course, at the same time that other women in Newnham College and other places, Girton, were making great strides for women's rights. One of the things I also try to do, and this comes up very early in the writing process, is I also try to connect to a theme that is relevant to Sherlock Holmes. So it's a kind of a mix between the title and the theme and just where it leads me. So I do actually start these books with a kind of stew. (laughs) It used to maybe be called the right brain, kind of feeling these things out. You know, Holmes is reputed to be the ultimate logical thinker, you know, making deductions based on logic. But in fact, if you really read the stories carefully, he's also a very instinctive and a very emotional man. So to walk that fine line between the rational thinking scientist and the man who also just has intuition and observation that feeds that is a very exciting set of characteristics for me to work with. And I kind of have to do that a bit in my writing because to deliver what the readers want and expect, there have to be some good deductions in there. One of the things that some Holmes writers do is kind of borrow the originals. But I try to deliver to the reader new deductions that they haven't seen before, but that are true in Victorian times. He's the original Superman. I mean, he's the original superhero because he has a superpower that other people don't have. But then there's also the kryptonite factor, and that is that man has some vulnerabilities. It's often referred to his drug use and so forth, and that is one of them. But another one is that he's actually a very lonely person. He has the one friend, as they said in BBC Sherlock. You know, a man who is that lonely and that solo, that is a vulnerability that we all can relate to. The other thing is he's described in the canon as what we would now call manic depressive or bipolar because he gets this incredible surge of energy while he's on a case. But the minute the case is over, he descends into a kind of morass of, I wouldn't call it self-pity, but just depression. He just, you know, lays on the couch and he can't move. And he, uh, one time in the canon itself, Watson has to travel down to the south of France and (laughs) bring him home because he's collapsed in in the hotel. You know, we can't help, as writers writing fiction, put some of ourselves into it, and also some of our time and place. I will admit that I have been also inspired by events around me, the news, my own life, etc. It's just impossible to throw that away and leave that behind. One of the things about Sherlock Holmes is that there's enough holes in the character that you can fill it with yourself. I don't consciously try to do that, but I do put things in there that are of interest to me. And also I will research some of the things that were happening then. And what's interesting is the Victorian times, the late Victorian times, mirrored our times in a lot of interesting social, socio-political and scientific ways. So it was a time of incredible change. The trains, first of all, changed everything. Suddenly everybody had a watch and was on time. The telegraph, eventually the telephone, photography, anesthesia, everything changed. 
quite a bit for the better, but also with some very deep challenges. That's kind of going on today as well. And certainly the world stage is, is in shift right now also. So again, there's so many things that relate. So I can't help but put some of my feelings and things about that in here. But what's interesting is I don't think they really contradict what Conan Doyle is doing. The thing that uh, really is amazing about this is that he chose to tell these stories in Watson's voice. And Watson is not a simple man, but he is a man of action. He's a very nice man. <laughs> and so these stories are infused with this generous and admiring tone. Not fawning at all, because he certainly calls out Holmes on any of his BS. And another thing about Watson's voice is because he's a man of action, and he's a little, maybe a little adrenaline junkie, he's succinct. And that, I think, really flies for the modern reader, and that's one of the reasons we're still reading this 130 years later. And also one of the reasons that I think modern writers are able to connect to this older verbiage, the longer sentence and so forth, but they're not the same as most of the Victorian writing of the time. They're more, I call it muscular prose. They just drive the story. And the Three Locks by Bonnie McBird is published by Collins Crime Club. We've been talking to Lynn Bryan on today's bookmark about her memoir, Iron Man, which is published by Salt. Lynn, reflecting on your dad's life and looking at it in detail as you do, it's a massive question really, but any regrets? My sister said to me after, dad passed away that she felt that she hadn't done enough for him and I actually said to her that we both did as much as we could I honestly don't have any regrets we did the best we could considering the circumstances considering the personalities involved considering society as it was at the time. We didn't completely estrange ourselves from him. We just weren't that cuddly, close family. But we were there. He saw his grandchildren grow up. He had a relationship with his grandchildren, which was different from the relationship with his own children. It was warmer. It was more affectionate. It was more fun, I think. So... No, I don't have any regrets because what is the point of regrets? It was the way it was. I wish perhaps I'd been able to say something like, you did really good, Dad. You know, you did do good. Because there was lots of things he wasn't. He could have gone down the way of trying to deal with his pain by becoming an addict, perhaps, or becoming very, very violent or gambling away that, you know, compensating that way. But he never did that. He went to work. He brought in the money. We were able to go to school. We were able to go to college. So it would have been nice to be able to say thank you for that. And what's next for you? I've been released. <laughs> the memoir has released me. So I'm now writing two books. One's very early days, the other has been going on for a while. But what the memoir is, it plays with structure and that's been quite releasing for me. And the two books I'm writing now are playing with structure and also the idea of fiction and non-fiction. Phew, that's really, really great to <laughs> be able to say, look, I'm mixing it all up. And a question we ask all our guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? 
It's a perigon. I think that's how you say it. It's quite a difficult name by Colin McCann. Are you enjoying it? Yes, I am very much. I think it's cracking. Again, the structure, it blows your mind. Thank you, Lynn. We'll come back to you. We'll, we'll leave it on that bombshell. But we'll come back to you in just a moment for your final choice of music. But a heads up, our next show, we'll be looking at debuts and our featured guest is Jo Browning-Rowe. She's talking about her debut novel, A Terrible Kindness. We'll also hear from Diran Nee Griefer about her debut, A Ghost in the Throat. And married couple Kieran Millwood Hargrave and Tom DeFreston will be talking about their first book for children together, Julia and the Shark. But we'll sign out now, Lynn, with your last choice of music, which is In the Garden by Van Morrison. Why this one? In the Garden was my choice of music for when I gave birth to my daughter. So after all the strain and the effort and the pain, the midwives put on In the Garden. It's just such a lyrical, moving piece of music. But also I realised that writing my memoir, that garden and gardening is escape for me. I absolutely love being in the garden. So this is my song of joy, basically. The field are always wet with rain After a summer shower When I saw you standing Standing in the garden In the garden Wet with rain Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876.